Hello out there and welcome to Wine, Women and Writing. This is Pamela Fagan Hutchins and this is the show where I talk with other authors primarily about their great female characters and how they um, how they brought them to life. So today we'll be doing that in just a second, but you guys know the drill if you have watched or listened to this show before. And that is that first I've got to tell you that I am very excited to be a part of Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. All hail Pam Stack, our Uber producer, and um, and she and the show own the copyright to my show. My show. <laughs> as far as um, today's show goes, I first want to tell you that today is book release day for me. If you're catching this show on the day of it. So if you get a chance to check out Stag Party, the number six in the Patrick Plant series, it won't hurt my feelings at all. That was um, Stag Party. And I also want to remind you that you can get past present shows um, and other information off my website. And this is important because I want you to read the books of the authors before I have them on the show so that you'll really be able to get into the discussion. And for instance, today would have been a very good one to do that because I know this is going to be a super discussion. I am excited to have Gina Wilkinson with me today, and she's going to be sharing with us some of how when the apricots bloom came to be. I'm Delighted to say hello to you, Gina. Welcome to the show. Oh, thanks, Paula, and congratulations on your new latest release. Thank you very much. Congratulations on your debut novel, which, by the way, I should tell you that whenever I am asked whether I'd like to interview a debut novelist, I always say, hold up, let me read the book first. And I did that, and I absolutely loved your book. Not kidding you, not being, you know, all nice because you're on the show. I really did. So oh, thanks. it's not a great book. Thank you. That's great to hear. Would you be willing to tell the listeners and viewers just a little bit about it to kind of get us started? Sure. Well, When the Apricots Bloom uh, was actually inspired by some events in my real life. Uh, I used to be a foreign correspondent and I was living in Thailand. And my husband, who's actually Canadian, had been following me around the world from Canada to Australia and then Australia to Thailand for my job. And he was offered a job working for UNICEF in Baghdad in Iraq. Uh, this is back in about 2000. Uh, and believe it or not, we were told at the time that if we went to Baghdad, we should expect a very uneventful posting. Uh, <laughs> the, the country was ruled by Saddam Hussein at that time. You couldn't fly in. All rail lines were cut. Uh, if there was um, economic sanctions there. There was very little happening and very little happening without Saddam Hussein's say-so. There were very, very few foreigners. Um, but as my husband had sort of been following me around the world for you know quite some time, we sort of thought, oh, well, this is a good opportunity for him to get his career going. The big uh, fly in the ointment, uh, you know, for me career-wise was that Saddam Hussein didn't allow journalists into Iraq. Um, but I was sort of intrigued by the idea of going to Iraq. It's, you know, such a pivotal country in ancient history, in modern history. And the fact that there were so few people allowed in sort of, you know, piqued my interest, I guess. Uh, so we... we um, set off for Baghdad and very soon after arriving I was befriended by a local woman who I later discovered was actually working as an informant for the regime secret police and reporting back on where I went, when I went, what I did, who I met and you know I should definitely want to say 
I don't blame her for that at all. In Saddam Hussein's Iraq, uh, if the secret police wanted you to do something, very few people were in a position to say no. Right. Um, but many, many years later, I was still thinking, you know, were we really friends? Was it just a horrible job for her? Uh, was it just an unpleasant duty? Or beneath that, did we have a real friendship? And so I started writing this story and it begins with the moment that the secret police arrive at the door of a secretary who works for um, the Australian embassy and tell her that she has to spy on her boss's wife, that, he want, that they want her to befriend his boss's wife to try and find out information or else they're going to conscript uh, her son into a militia. So the story I wrote is, you know, it's fiction, but it's inspired, I guess, by that real life friendship. And it's told from the point of view of, of the secretary who is forced to do the spying, of the diplomat's wife who she is spying on, and then by a third woman who is an artist because uh, one of the things I loved about living in Baghdad was its amazing art scene. You know, people probably shaped their ideas on Iraq based on, you know, what they saw on their TV screens or read in the newspapers during the Iraq war. But, of course, there is much more to it than that. And uh, that was a way for me to show, you know, some of the more uh, wonderful aspects of Iraqi culture and society, not just the oppression that was taking place under Saddam Hussein. Well, I, I mean, first of all, for those of us that are, are thinking about, can we delve into some female characters today? Kind of rich environment. And when the apricots bloom, we've got three really unique and troubled um, protagonists, all for their different reasons. And it's you hardly know where to start because all three of their stories are so good. Um, I guess I'll start with with you in the sense that did you find writing this? helped you address or answer the question of whether your friend and you had shared a real friendship or did it still leave you kind of hanging? Yeah, you know, um, I guess a lot of writers, and I think I am one of those, uh, you know, we write fiction because we are looking for the answers that we didn't get in our real lives, that we get an opportunity to ask the questions that perhaps we weren't able to ask at that time or weren't courageous enough to ask at that time. Uh, you know, I thought about it a lot. I think it's probably still up in the air <laughs> to, tell the, to tell the truth. Um, but, you know, I love that character that, you know, of the three characters, she's probably my favourite. She definitely allowed me to explore the issue of uh, what and how do people react when they're under extreme pressure. You know, I used to be a war correspondent and I know from my personal experience that when people are under extreme pressure, they can act out of character. You know, someone who is highly ethical normally can suddenly make an unexpected mistake. Uh, someone who's very meek can suddenly become very courageous. And I wanted to really delve into, you know, how do people respond? And she really gave me the ability to look at, you know, when you're forced into a situation where you have to do something that runs contrary to your own morals, you know, do you give in straight away? Do you try and work out some compromise? Do you resist and, and where do you draw the line? And I really wanted to look at it in a way, you know, to be able to put people in the shoes of someone who's doing something they initially thought was terrible, but by the end of it, they're thinking, mm, you know, maybe, maybe I would have done the same. 
Right. And uh, that was really something that I wanted to explore, you know, through that character. Yeah, and especially to the mix, having children that are threatened, as really two of the three women in this story do. Um, and the third is not a child, but it's the opportunity to know her mother that's that she stands to either gain or lose um so it, it's it's to me even more rich because of that familial bond that seems to for a lot of us cause us to do things we wouldn't think about doing otherwise yeah that's right well when you have um children you know, there's pretty much nothing that you wouldn't do to protect them. And uh, your protagonist always has to be a, have a driving force or a mission and protecting your children is the ultimate mission really for, <laughs> most, for most women or for most parents even. And so that um, really allowed me to propel the plot forward because there was so much at stake. And that's, uh, you know, it's more than just thinking, what am I prepared to do? How far am I prepared to go in terms of my own moral beliefs? But when you throw into the mix, well, if I don't, my child's safety or future could be at risk. Um, that really puts you in a, a tight spot where you have to, I guess, get creative if you're going to, you know, survive. So one thing that I want to point out to everybody is that on Gina's website, she does have a downloadable quiz, quiz, a list of book club questions, which I always love. I love to um, know what the people behind a book are thinking or the intriguing questions. A few of them were definitely ones that I'd thought of. And one thing that jumped out at me early on was um, how did you felt when writing Allie? And Allie is the um, the woman married to the diplomat that used to be a journalist or is a journalist, but is hiding that um, in this book. And the links that she went to and the risks that she took for herself and caused other people to face, um, how you felt about that as you were writing it? Yeah, you know, a lot of people sort of assume that I am the character of Ali, and I guess, you know, we have some similarities. Um, we were both journalists. Uh, we both decided to put our career on hold, uh, you know, to follow our husbands to Iraq. Uh, we both entered Iraq using a terrible visa category called the, the category of dependent spouse, which was um, <laughs> what I had to use to get into, into Baghdad. I guess the big differences are that unlike Ali, um, while I did feel some of that isolation to start off with, I actually went out pretty quickly and got myself a job um, working for the United Nations. And I guess the biggest difference is that I knew, even before I entered Iraq, that I would be under intense surveillance. Um, my husband and I were given a security briefing in Jordan before we entered the country. And we were told, you know, the office will be bugged. Uh, you can't you can't take your mobile phone into Iraq, but your home phone will be bugged. Your um, house could well have hidden microphones. And if you want to have a private conversation, go for a walk. Don't stay inside where there is a power source for a hidden microphone. Go for a walk. So um, you know we really got our steps in. Um, not not that we uh, not that we had any secrets to hide, but uh, you know sometimes you want to have a private conversation. Um, so I went in knowing that um, I was being listened to. I didn't realize it was by one of my closest friends, uh, but I was aware that I was under intense surveillance. And so for that reason, I was very careful not to do anything that would put myself or especially uh, one of my Iraqi friends at risk. 
uh, I might get you know, kicked out of the country as punishment, but they would suffer much more serious consequences. And Ali, I guess she is much more naive about um, you know, the risks that she's taking and the risks that she's exposing other people to. And, and we should uh, emphasize what she's doing is she's looking at for information on her mother who had been in Iraq as a young woman prior to um, passing away, having having Ali and passing away. So she's driven by something pretty powerful. Um, but you're right. She, she just doesn't seem to get that she could get herself and other people killed, you know, for what she's doing. Yeah, you know, I would, um, you know, that was something that I guess I used to keep her in the country rather than having her flee straight away. But one thing I would say is it's amazing what you can get used to. Uh, you know, I have lived in some crazy situations and I've had people say, oh, you know, for example, when I was the um, bureau chief in Baghdad during the war, people would say, you know, why are you doing that? Uh, you know, aren't you afraid um, that you could get killed? And, you know, the fact was I could have been um, killed or seriously injured every single day, but I had a job to do and I did it. And, you know, you just learn to sort of put it out of your mind and everyone else is doing the same thing around you. Everyone is living this sort of normal life. You know, one of the things about Baghdad that really struck me was everywhere you turned, there was a mural of Saddam Hussein. There was a statue of Saddam Hussein. Um, there was actually a saying that there were enough statues in Baghdad for every one of the five million uh, people living there at the time. <laughs> but at the same time, no one said his name out loud. It was completely taboo because people were afraid that if you said his name, you'd activate some hidden microphone or you'd, you know, attract the attention of informers. Um, so you were living this sort of double existence, you know, this very normal sort of life where you got up, you went to, to work, you went to the, you know, store, got your groceries, made your dinner, and yet when you walked out the front door, there was a huge billboard of Saddam Hussein and perhaps an informer um, or a member of the secret police across the way keeping tabs on you. And um, I guess in a way it's sort of um, testament to the human powers of endurance that, you know, people can adapt to the most bizarre circumstances and keep going not that i'm saying that's a um, reason to be naive but it is amazing i've found what you can uh get used to and just turn into your everyday routine and how jarring it is when it's so different from your everyday my husband visited libya um uh, you know before the fall and you know again billboards everywhere of Gaddafi and you didn't say his name and he'd been there 24 hours and I'd written something on my blog back in the US about my husband being in Libya and and just really innocuous and he got a phone call and was told please have your wife take that down and he was wow. just thinking I mean, that went up like two hours ago and there's nothing offensive, but you weren't allowed to utter the word, you know, or say he was there. So, and you know, and, and we, and in countries that are not controlled like that, I think that it's hard for us to believe how much control um, is being exerted upon people in some of these other countries. And that really came clear, um, it came out loud and clear in your book. And to me was extremely interesting from your perspective of having been there, which brings up another good question or another one that I thought about as a writer, which is how do we as writers incorporate all the diversity around us in the world and the unique voices when we ourselves can only be one human with one 
set of characteristics. And in this case, you wrote from a, a lens that may have been more familiar to, to you, Ali, and then from two Iraqi women, um, quite different from you in terms of their characteristics. How has that gone for you? Yeah, actually, um, fine. <laughs> I know uh, our own voices is, um, you know, a conversation that many people are having, and rightly so. Uh, you know, I think uh, in general the public publishing industry has, uh, you know, marginalised um, diverse voices and um, people of colour for a very long time, and that's something that you know really needs to change. We need more books from diverse authors set in diverse places. And I think that's gradually happening as, you know, publishers and bookstores see that there's a market for that because, you know, they're driven by economics. Um, for me, uh, you know, I guess I sort of fall on the side of Pen America or um, the author, uh, well-known British author, she's a person of colour, Zadie Smith. She wrote a great article where she said that, um, you know, she didn't believe that, authors and their characters need to have the same autobiographical coordinates that she'd written from the point of, of you know, black, white, brown, uh, gay, straight, male, female, adult, child, um, and even alive and dead. And uh, it's, you know, um, it's a question of getting inside the other person's mind. And, you know, I did do a lot of fact-checking. Uh, I had um, three of my very close Iraqi friends read it and make sure that, you know, there was nothing um, that seemed, you know, unauthentic, inauthentic about it um, to them. And my Iraqi friends were extremely happy that I was writing this book. They thought it was great that I managed to get, you know, an Iraqi, give Iraqi characters um, a fairly strong voice. Um, and, uh, I actually find that, you know, when it comes to the important things in life, you know, I've lived all over the world. I find that actually, you know, there are so many things that we share. You know, we might bake our bread differently. We might pray differently. But the most important things, our love for our family, our um, desire for um, safety, uh, for freedom, these are things that we actually do share. And Books, I think, are a great way to show that, you know, to allow us to step into somebody else's shoes. And I feel at this moment in time, we feel so divided, you know, that there are so many barriers between us and we're sort of retreating into like-minded communities. I think that makes books even more important. Um, so, you know, I was pretty happy with the outcome. And in general, I think if people read it, uh, they can have, you know, of course, have their own opinions, but generally um, the reaction has been really positive. I love to hear that. And I, I totally agree with you that by reading, we find ourselves able to put on different shoes, to see the world possibly through different lenses and whatever we can do to get those stories out there. In this case, the story wouldn't have been written had you not written it because each of us as authors has stories within us and we either tell them or we don't. And I think one of the, one of the things I'm most happy about is to see diverse voices starting to be able to plead their economic case with publishers and to, and to get published. Um, and I'm also excited that 
um, we are as authors able to explore the stories in us and have the freedom to do so in whichever way they want to come out. The public ultimately will be the judge, whether we do a good job or not of that. Right, Gina? You know, always close the book and say, well, no, <laughs> but I don't think they will in this case. As I started out by saying, you guys, I did read this book before I booked Gina on the show and um, it's up there. It's up there high on my top 10 list for this year, which has not been wow. formulated yet because wow. I still have uh, time to go. But I loved it. I absolutely oh, loved you. being able to step into um, a country that I'm not personally familiar with and to look at it from these different points of view and see it through these different struggles. And I think you guys will, too, if you like action adventure. It's definitely got that. If you like um, peeking into different cultures, even the history of those cultures comes out in this book. Um, and if you want something that reads like a thriller at the same time as literary fiction, then this is going to be a good one for you. So thank you for being on the show today. Very, very much, Gina. For, oh, thank you, Pamela. For those of you out there that can't read the screen because you're listening to the podcast, the book's name again is When the Apricots Bloom. You should go pick up a copy. And uh, if you want to go and take a look at the past shows or read for the upcoming shows so you can be prepared to follow along with the discussion, then go to PamelaFaganHutchins.com where you can also see information about my books, including new release today, Stag Party. Yay. So glad to get another one out there in the universe. This is been Wine, Women, and Writing. I'm Pamela Fagan Hutchins with Gina Wilkinson, and you guys go out and read a good book. Bye, everyone. Thank you.